Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. What we were finding is connections had a positive impact, right? If people manage in certain ways. But the real thing that was killing people were small moments of stress over time. It wasn't the big things. It wasn't, you know, the massive health crises. There are small moments of stress coming at us through connections with others that have really risen to a velocity and volume that is having a pretty significant impact on really all of us. That was Rob Cross, who has studied the underlying network dynamics of effective organizations and the collaborative practices of high performers for more than 20 years. Through research and writing, speaking and consulting, and courses and tools, his network insights are transforming the way people lead, work, and live in a hyper-connected world. Rob is the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College and co-founder and current research director of the Connected Commons, a consortium of over 100 leading organizations accelerating network research and practice. As you heard in the highlighted clip, his work has zeroed in on the importance of connections in networks. In his latest book, The Micro-Stress Effect, co-authored with Karen Dillon, Rob delves into findings that show that our connections with others, even those we care most about, can trigger an avalanche of small stresses that snowball to the point where it affects our personal well-being. This is a growing issue as companies move toward smaller teams and greater collaboration across teams. In this episode, we talk about what it means in the workplace, including what micro-stresses are and how they can impact the workplace and collaboration within teams, the surprising effects that micro-stresses can have on our health, mental state, and organization's effectiveness, why managers accidentally create micro-stresses by encouraging more collaboration, and what we can do about it, and some specific tips we can all follow to reduce the negative effects of micro-stresses. Ladies and gentlemen, Rob Cross. Rob, thank you so much for being here with us. It's great to have you finally on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a treat. I'd love to start with the same two questions I always ask. First is just to get us to know you a little bit personally. have nothing to do with your work at all. Could you complete the sentence for me? If you really know me, you know that. So if you really know me, you know that I have just finished scuba certification. I am a lifelong person that's looking to adapt new experiences and bring them into their world. And scuba has been kind of the latest. Oh, wow. It's a really cool activity, but also pulls you into some really neat groups. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and I can see how that can relate to your work in terms of expanding the relationships you have as well. Interesting. My youngest son just got certified. And so now we have five of us in the family that are certified. And so we're looking forward to taking trips with that. The places it takes you is unbelievable. Beautiful. You know, yeah. <laughs> even if you don't like diving, you're still going to go to those places. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Good excuses to go to beautiful places. Second question is what's your definition of strategy? So for me, I think of it more as a verb and of defining and then putting in place processes, structure that allows you to accomplish important goals. You know, and I think about it certainly that way organizationally, but just as much at a personal level, given the work I've been doing more recently. Gotcha. Yeah, and I can kind of see a strategy being part of your bigger idea, but we'll get into that. 
So your most recent book is about micro stresses. And so I want to get into that, but can you first define what a micro stress is? Sure, sure. Because I got into this work not looking for it. I run a consortium of about 150 organizations that really looks at patterns of collaboration and connectivity at a very strategic or organizational level, sometimes mapping interaction patterns of 90, 100,000 people if we're looking at large scale culture change. And it was a part of this work that we got into that focused on understanding high performers in these networks, right? And running the analytics globally and then getting separate performance data from organizations and seeing how and what is distinguishing the top performers out there. And so what got me into this, I was presenting four or five years ago to the consortia and everybody loved understanding collaboratively what are these people doing that's enabling them to innovate, scale globally, just very different things. But I started getting questions around, well, what about happy people? <laughs> you know, people who are just thriving in their work, given how tired people are today. And this is pre-pandemic, right? And so I remember just groaning when somebody brought that up. So I was like, the only thing everybody cared about five or six years ago was corporate innovation and how to innovate more and use these analytics. But I followed them, the lead of the members, and it got me on this run of really understanding how do connections play a role in our well-being. So it got titled The Micro-Stress Effect. Because what we were finding is connections had a positive impact, right? If people manage in certain ways. But the real thing that was killing people were small moments of stress over time. It wasn't the big things. It wasn't, you know, the massive health crises. Those happened for sure. But what was really trapping people were these small moments of stress that looked like a misalignment with a colleague that you're trying to figure out in the back of your mind. And then suddenly you see a team member that needs to be coached for the third time. And you're going, how am I going to do that and keep their engagement? And then you 10 seconds later get a text from your child and you can't tell if it's a big deal or something there over in five seconds and you worry about for three hours. There's small moments of stress coming at us through connections with others that have really risen to a velocity and volume that is having a pretty significant impact on really all of us. Talk to me a little bit about why there's such an impact from these micro stresses, because from what I read of your work, they have a much longer lasting significant impact than we would think. Yeah, it's huge. You know, I was lucky enough because of my consortia, I'm only in top organizations and I was only in each place talking to five of the most successful women, five of the most successful men. So these are highly successful people, yet at least 90, 95% of them would describe stretches in their careers where they went three, five, eight years and just woke up one day and said, I'm nowhere near where I intended to be as a human being in life and engaging in the work that I want to be doing. And again, it was never a neon light change, right? It was always a slow accumulation day to day, week to week that led to that. And as we delved into it, you know, what we're finding is that there's tremendous physical effects. These stresses, our minds don't really register them. They don't invoke the fight or flight response that conventional stress does, but our bodies absorb them in the exact same way. You know, we do stress of so blood pressure rises, heart rate rises, cortisol levels. There was one study that even showed that metabolically, if we're under this form of social stress and have a meal within two hours, it adds 104 calories to that meal, the same meal. You may say that's not a big deal, but you do that over the course of a year and it's 11 pounds. So we can see that absorbing this many negatives, even though they seem like small moments, really matters. Or the other problem is falling out of the positives that COVID has pulled us out of in different ways. 
We know that about a third of Americans are categorically lonely and falling into that category is the same mortality rate as 15 cigarettes a day, you know, 26% greater likelihood of dying earlier, blood pressure, dementia, you name it. So in aggregate, you look at that and you're going, man, that's crazy that we don't pay more attention to this, right? We'll chase blood pressure medicines and cholesterol and everything else down to the ends of the earth that we're ignoring being intentional on either side, reducing the stress or amplifying the positive something that has equal impact on us physically and mentally. I think it really helped for people to understand and visualize. Can you describe some of the types of microstresses? You even have like a schema of three different types of microstresses. So as we went through this, there was a category that really affected us because they drained our capacity, right? They'd hurt our ability to get done what we needed to get done. And that can take the form of misalignment, you know, with peers, right? You agree in the room and then people go out and pull in different directions strategically, there's not a company out there that isn't trying to pursue agile, some form of delayering in talent marketplaces. And it introduces all these opportunities for microstress that get created as a product of misalignment, right? Second one was in that category, what we called small misses, unreliable colleagues, however you want to say it. And again, the problem is strategically, all these organizations are kind of moving to become more network centric, right? And flatten hierarchies and people are being put in more and more teams, So in most places, I would interview people who are on four, five, six teams. And so what that stress looked like is, let's say you happen to own one of these initiatives and four other people are on your team. They show up to your initiative at 95% done, right? So they're almost done. (laughs) Small miss. But 5% miss times four people means 20% impact on that person that's there, right? And they're stuck making a decision. Do I work through the night and create stress with my family or pull myself out of other things that keep me healthy? Or do I underdeliver, both of which create stress? And most people would choose, you know, throughout all this work to work through the night, right? And then the thing that is then taught to people is that 95% was good enough. There may be 90% the next time. And not because people are nefarious. You know, I go through these interviews, 600 of them. And you've had a very clear sense that people are making decisions based on which balls to drop these days and not how to excel. So strategically, if you're in this context and you're just thinking of teams as a great thing and leaders are throwing teams at everything and not recognizing the cost of it, either collaboratively or in terms of well-being, it's a pretty big miss. Our analytics haven't caught up to what strategically we're pushing organizations into. And it's the same thing, I think, that went happened through the process revolution with Deming and Duran. It took them 10 years to catch up. We've kind of created the same context here in these shifts towards network-centric organizations. So that was one drain capacity. Second were emotional impacts, you know, would take the form of conflictual conversations. Some people love them, but most people, they worry about them before, during and after the interaction and create stress in that way. But those emotional impacts could also be people you love and care about. Right. And this gets created because you're worried about a child or an aging parent or a team member that you're trying to take care of. And then the last category were challenges to identity. Those actually tended to be the more subtle and happen more slowly. But it would be slow pressures to oversell from leaders or pressures to deliver certain efficiencies because consultants have come in and said you can do spans of controls of 12 versus 8, which is ludicrous in different places. But we're getting pushed in different ways to treat people differently, right, as a product of that. You look at the physicians, for example, in all my interviews, and they have spent a lot of time and money going through med school and doing other things in their lives to be able to treat people in ways that suddenly they're not able to, right? They're having to move from point A to point B. So there would be a series of them that had to do with that, basically, and being pushed to be somebody who wasn't who you signed up to be initially. 
So by distinguishing these, we can more easily recognize them. What does the individual do? I'm going to ask what the individual does, and I want to ask what the manager or the organizational designer does, but start with the individual. What did you find that an individual could do to reduce these micro stressors? Chapter five in the book really hones in as an inflection point around the micro stresses, and that's basically a table. We've also put an app out on the app store that people can download. But what it does is it says, okay, here's the 14 microstresses. And then across the top, it's saying, here's the typical sources of them, right? A boss, stakeholders, teammates, colleagues, loved ones, et cetera. And I ask people to just make three passes through that. You know, one is to go through and say, where are three or four of these interactions that are systemic enough that you should be doing something about? Then inevitably, people are able to, typically they could go up to 10, but you're saying just keep it to three to four, right? Make it manageable. Then go a second time through it and say, well, where are three or four of these here that you're unnecessarily causing others? And that always catches people off guard. And they're like, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought about that. But what we saw in the work is the stress we unnecessarily create inevitably boomerangs back on us. You lean on an employee too hard, right? And they disengage and you're working harder. And then the third pass through is to go through and say, where do I need to rise above? Where am I just down in the weeds? Something's gotten under my skin, whatever it may be. And I'm just creating stress and moments that in the context of life just isn't worth it. Right. And that was the magic of our happiest people is they were pretty good at keeping perspective and they did it in a couple of different ways. These are the 10 percenters that you talk about. Yeah. Yeah. The 10 percenters, I kind of labeled that because, you know, 600 interviews and great places, great people. What always happened is the first 10 minutes of these 90-minute interviews, it was rainbows and lollipops. You know, life's great. My kids are in a great place and this and that. And then you get down to minute 30 and the cracks are coming in and minute 45 and, you know, you're seeing how they're struggling to hold it all together professionally and personally. And in the end of it, some people are even choking up, you know, with the stress. But what was fascinating is about 10% never went. 10% stayed kind of high. And that was a real group we focused on in the latter half of the book to say, what are these people that are really living life more on their terms doing? How are they doing and performing at the level they are? What are some of the things that you see them doing? They are tremendously good at living the small moments well with other people. So as an example, they may hike the Himalayas or sail the ocean, but that wasn't what was making them happy. Right. What was making them happy was they were really good at living small moments in interactions with others. So I can give an example, a super successful, actually chief strategy officer in one of the software companies in Silicon Valley. She came out of, I think it was Stanford. She's always been a runner all her life. And she said, you know, Rob, for the first 20 years out of school, I ran by society's definition of what running was for. Like if I didn't get a personal best time every year, it was a bad year for running. Right. And you think about the ludicrousness of that pursuit. But it was guiding her time, like how she spent time training alone, right? And doing things, early morning runs, gym workouts, and everything else that was taking time away from people that she cared about or connections that she wanted to form. And she said she woke up one day and said, what I really wanted to be doing was running with my daughter, her best friend and a parent in our community. And we started doing that and evolved into a whole group of parents and kids. So if you get what I'm saying there, she took the same activity of running and she just pivoted it and said, how do I do this in a way that'll pull me into connections that matter to me? Right. In that case, it was family and community. And when you start looking at your life that way, it's stunning the number of opportunities we have to make small pivots that pull us into authentic moments. So I want to kind of flip that then because it's making me think, you know, as a leader or as someone who's organizing org structure, 
Does that mean that we should be looking at ways to create moments of interaction that are the opposite of micro stressors? I think both. And what I would urge, you know, and I've been doing this well before I got into this micro stress work, we've run the network analytics that I use inside companies where we're mapping patterns of connectivity in different ways. And one of the really big mistakes, if you are doing org design, is really factoring in the collaborative footprint of the role. A number of times I've come behind companies that are moving, for example, going through a spans and layers activity. And I'd laugh at this so many times because there's one company that has built a reputation on the span of control needs to be eight, right? And I can be in a bank and then I can be in a life sciences organization and they're working with the same company and that span of control needs to be eight. And unfortunately, they've let that grow. They've come back recently and said, well, gosh, with digital strategies, now we can do 12. Like, not quite sure the logic behind that, but it's because they're showing more efficiencies in there. So my point is what we can see when we run these analytics across organizations is that it really does a disservice to places. Some roles that are typically more transactional that you actually can accommodate a larger span of control. You have some that are much more collaboratively complex and for is the highest. So what I'm seeing is the more successful from a design standpoint, places are really factoring in the collaborative footprint of the work more and not just kind of assuming it, you know, as a network model or something like that, that tends to be a lot more successful. That alone will take down the micro stress a tremendous amount. Right. The vehicles for these stresses coming at us are the connections in our lives, and they make them even more significant than disassociated stress. Because if it's coming at me from somebody I dislike, it spikes on me. If it's coming at me from somebody I love or care about, it spikes even more on me. So that's one thing for sure. And then I think from a leadership standpoint, which work we're doing right now with a ton of leaders is really thoughtful about taking some of these ideas and commitments that people need to make to take better care of themselves, right? Along these lines, places are building them into performance reviews. They're making them part of the fabric of what they're talking about. And I think they're really right. You know, there'll be a a category of person in the audience that would go, oh, but that's personal, you know, and that shouldn't be mixing with corporate. But the reality a lot of people say is, man, if that person is totally shot, (laughs) you know, what they're going to bring into work is not going to be great either. So kind of paying attention to that in different ways, in a way that's appropriate. Yeah, it was just an hour ago before recording this, I was talking to a chief strategy officer and she's going through the review process now. And her thing right now is asking people, what do you do outside of work? And a lot of people don't expect that to be part of the conversation. Second biggest thing, you know, and yes, what are the two things with the 10 percenters? The other one is they almost universally had at least two and usually three groups they were an authentic part of outside of their profession. And that introduced dimensionality to their lives that just kept perspective around the work and the interactions. The stories that ended horrendously were people that everything had become profession and direct family and kind of lost that dimensionality. So that's a great prompt, right, to just think about what are you doing there? How do we create space for that? There's a lot of other little things like that that I think companies can have a pretty big impact on. And, you know, at one level, it's the right thing to do, but I'm guaranteed very confident that if you do it well, you're going to reduce attrition. You're going to keep people a lot longer. It used to be, we would find in our models, it was the people that couldn't break into the networks that left. Now it's very bimodal, right? It's the people that are getting overwhelmed by all the demands and they just choose to go elsewhere. I believe you'll find a great reduction in people going into clinical categories of care 
right? And economically, that has huge impact. So there's a lot of strategically relevant reasons beyond just the right thing to do. (laughs) So I have a question. I don't recall reading this in what you've written, so I don't know if you've looked at this, but I try to formulate this. There's work that you do with other people and you're dependent on them to do certain steps. You do steps one, they do step two, and you know there's a lot of interdependencies. Humans are also remarkable at simultaneous coordination without interaction, just simultaneously doing the same thing or creating the same thing. And I'm wondering if mission or purpose or those kinds of things allow us to coordinate behavior without requiring as much interaction between people. I would see it slightly differently. I would say it slightly differently. And that is, for example, people that are very effective at creating trust in them quickly. They have much greater efficiency in what they're doing. I think it comes from mission. The thing with the idea of purpose to me that's intriguing in this context alone is some of the worst cases of overwhelm and burnout and stress you see are in, for example, the investment banks, right? Or the other places where there is not a great deal of purpose. And most of them would admit it (laughs) in the interview. They would say they had to go outside of their profession to get that. The other place that was the biggest source of burnout were the high purpose places. Interesting. It would be, you know, people that had nobility in their mantra, right, of what they were doing. And I won't mention names, but, you know, the high purpose cultures, they pull people in and, you know, you're either in or out, right? You're either all in, you know, bought the Kool-Aid, whatever you want to call it. And what I would find is they're all greatest place to work, but they create people in a different way that are very unidimensional. So that question that person asked about what else are you doing outside of work, I think is really important. Fascinating. So I've got a number of other questions, but we're reaching the top of our time with you. So I'll set two more. One is when people read this work or develop their understanding of it, what do they typically get wrong or misunderstand about what you found? The biggest thing that I worry about is looking at the negative interactions and just saying, I can't do anything about it. Just saying, I have to persist through it. If you look at it and say, well, I can't change my boss, right? Or I can't change this demanding client. That's true. If you're looking at at the relational level. But if you look at it and say, you know, it's these three kinds of interactions that are driving me crazy, then you have a lot more ability to shape it. What I see in this and what we know from history of social psychology is the negative interactions in our lives have three to five times the impact of the positive. So if we're just persisting through the negatives, because that's what we think we have to do, we're actually leaving some of the greatest potential to have quality impact on our lives on the table. Yet when I do a ton of this leadership work in places and I'll popcorn around the room, most of what you see people talking about is I need to get dimensionality in my life. I need to add things. I need to live the small moments better. It's all the positives and not saying, here's how I could shape a negative interaction. I'll push them on and they'll go, yeah, yeah, you're right. Here's what I could do. But we tend to bypass that. Fascinating. Yeah, that matches so many other findings in other areas that make sense. So I know we just scratched the surface here. How can people continue to learn from you and engage with this? Certainly, we'll encourage them to get the book. Any other places they can go to continue being connected with you? Yeah, robcross.org is my site. And then we obviously have a site for the book. And there's a bunch of videos and things that we're posting on it. There's the Micro Stress Effect app that we just put up on the Apple Store that's free for people to download. I'll be pushing these ideas into organizations in different ways with case studies. And one of our next steps will probably be to migrate them into high schools as well. We see this as something that will continue. You do 600 interviews like that and see where people are struggling and it kind of gets in your soul. (laughs) Yeah, you got 600 faces. 
Well, Rob, thank you for doing the 600 interviews, for the work that you do and for sharing it here with us. It was great to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the time. Thank you. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.